Chapters five and six of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter five. The Earl is startled. He held her off to get a better view of her face. Then he stared at her. You engaged? He cried. She nodded two or three times in reply. Such a mite as you. Why, how long have you been engaged, pray? I don't quite know, ever since I can remember. Oh, a family arrangement between your parents and your betrothed husbands, I suppose. Oh, no, not at all, only between him and me. At that early age, do babies betroth themselves in America? I don't quite know, but we did, and we were not both babies. He was a schoolboy, but I think I was a baby at first. At first, very likely. Well, when are you to be married? I don't quite know, but not until Roland gets his rights and comes into his estates. Ah, there is litigation. But who is this happy man Roland? He is a mate on a merchant ship at present, but when he gets his rights, I am sure he will be a nobleman of high rank and maybe a prince of royal race. Oh, said the earl with a curious smile. Then, growing suddenly very grave, he inquired, My dear child, do your parents know anything about your relations with this adventurer? He is not an adventurer, said Rosemary. But when he, a skipper's mate, represents himself to be a man of rank, kept out of his rights. But he don't represent himself to be any other than what he seems. Oh, I beg your pardon, my dear. I thought you said he did. No, oh no. I said that I feel sure that when he gets his rights, he will be a nobleman or prince. Ah, but why should you think so, my dear? Oh, no one could look at Roland Bayard and not know him to be one of princely rank, exclaimed Rosemary. with such solemn fervor that the earl turned and gazed at her. And is this the only reason you have for thinking the young man of gentle blood? No, not only his looks, but his voice, speech, tone, manner, gesture, all proclaim him of noble blood. As Rosemary spoke, she suddenly turned and looked intently at the earl, and then she added, Yes, it is true, it is not my imagination. I have thought it often, though I never spoke of it before. Of what, my dear? Of Roland Bayard's likeness to you. To me, my dear? Yes, to you, but for the difference in age and in health. He is as much like you as one man can be to another. Indeed? Yes, indeed. An imaginary or an accidental likeness, my child. But, Rosemary, to return to yourself, do your parents or guardians know anything of your relations with this questionable stranger? He is not a questionable stranger. He was brought up among us at home. Did I not tell you he used to ride me on his shoulder when he was a boy and I was a baby? Then, if he is not a stranger, you must know all about him, and whether he is of high or low degree. We do know all about him, but nothing at all about his family. He was saved from a ship that was wrecked on our coast, and he was the only one saved, and there was not a mark on him or his clothing to identify him. Mr. Force undertook to provide for him, and placed him with Miss Sibylla Margareta Bayard. who was herself descended from a great English duke, though no one would ever think so to look at her. Mr. Force also sent Roland to school, and afterward to college, and he would have sent him to the Naval Academy at Annapolis, only he had already used all his influence to get Leonidas entered there, and he could not ask the same favor for Roland. So Roland, being bent upon going to sea, entered the merchant service. Ah, I see. But, my child, it seems to me that you have not yet answered the question that I have twice put to you. 
Do your parents or guardians know of the engagement between you and this young man? I have only one parent, my mother. My father was lost at sea before I was born, and left no property and no will, because his ship went down, with everything on board. My mother has some property, and so has Aunt Suki, and they take care of me, said Rosemary. And that was all she said at the time. The Earl looked at her curiously. Was the child purposely evading his question? No, the grave little face was too true for that thought. Does your mother or your aunt know of your relations with young, young... Roland Bayard? Yes. Why, I think everyone in our neighborhood must know all about it, because we all know all about our neighbors, and some say that they know more of us than we do ourselves, and that we know more of them than they do of themselves. I think that quite likely. But do your friends approve of your engagement? Not now, but they will when Roland comes into his rights. You poor child, murmured the earl in a low tone. Then speaking in a clearer voice, he asked, "'Rosemary, would you marry this young man without the approbation of your friends?' "'No, never,' she answered solemnly. "'That is right. Now then, if your friends were to counsel you to accept another suitor whom they approved, would you do so?' "'No, never,' replied the child, more emphatically than before. "'Then what would you do?' "'I would be an old maid like Aunt Suki. I never would marry Roland Bayard against the will of my mother and my aunt, nor would I ever marry anyone else even to please them.' I would be a maiden lady, like Miss Susanna Grandier. Little true heart, well, little friend, I will not try, through your guardians, to marry you against your will. Neither, I think, will I marry anyone else. And in any case, we shall always be friends, shall we not, little sweet herb? Always, and it is so good of you to say so, exclaimed Rosemary, giving his hand another fond squeeze. They sauntered on in silence until they overtook Wynnette and Elva, who had sat down on a garden seat to wait for them. "'It is time to go home to luncheon,' said Wynnette, "'and I am starved.' They turned their steps toward their hotel, and reached it in time to join Mr. and Mrs. Force and Odalite at luncheon, at their usual hour. That afternoon, while Mr. Force was taking his daily nap, and the young girls were resting in their chambers, the Earl found himself alone with his sister in their private parlor. "'Elfrida,' he said, "'I want you to tell me something about this little protégé of yours.' "'Rosemary Hedge?' "'Yes.' Well, she is the daughter of the late Captain Hedge, of the Merchant Service, and of his wife, Dorothy Grandier, the daughter of the late Gideon Grandier, of St. Mary's. Her family is one of the oldest and best in the state, and her friends have entrusted her to us for the benefit of travel. That is all there is about Rosemary Hedge. No, not quite all. The little one tells me that she is engaged to be married. Who, Rosemary? Yes. Engaged to be married? Yes. This is news to me. I never even suspected such a thing. Nor do I know how she has ever had an opportunity of being wooed, far less one, exclaimed the lady in surprise. And yet the child honestly thinks that you know all about it, replied the earl. I know nothing, and I am really distressed at the news you tell me. Have I been so absorbed in the care of my sick husband as to have neglected the interests of the orphan child? What adventurer has picked her up in the name of heaven? Tell me, Francis, if you know." "'Do you know anything of a young fellow called Roland Bayard?' significantly inquired the earl, fixing his eyes intently on the face of his sister. That face paled under his wistful gaze, but the lady recovered herself in a few moments and replied, "'Yes, he is a young man who in infancy was cast upon our shores from a wrecked ship. He was cared for by Mr. Force, 
who placed him in charge of a respectable woman and afterward sent him to school and to college. Does anyone know anything about his parentage? He was the sole survivor of the wreck. There was not a mark on his clothing or on his person to give a clue to his parentage. But as Mr. Force has practically adopted him, he will not need to investigate his own antecedents. He is in the merchant service now. Yes, I have heard so much from Rosemary. But now as to his character. He is above reproach. A not unworthy namesake of two heroes, Roland and Bayard. But why do you inquire into the history of this young man? Because it is to him that Rosemary is engaged, or thinks herself engaged. Oh, laughed the lady, that is an old story. It cannot be an old story, since the child is but seventeen. It is relatively an old story. When he was a schoolboy, he was much favored by his friends at Grandiers, who lived at Oldfield near Forest Rest, where his foster mother, Miss Bayard, lived, and where Roland was reared. Rosemary was a baby. He used to pet her very much, and tell her that she was his sweetheart and his little wife, and all such childish nonsense as that. And I think they kept it up until Rosemary was sent to boarding school with our girls. Since that time, some five years ago now, I think there has been no more of it. I thought it was all forgotten long ago. But it is not, you see. The child thinks that she is engaged to him. I wonder if she is attached to him, said the lady thoughtfully. I do not quite know. Perhaps, as she believes herself to be engaged, she may also only believe that she is attached to him. It is a subject upon which one cannot very closely cross-examine a young girl. No, you could not, but I must, replied the lady. Without mentioning my name, if you please, Elfrida, said the earl, who also religiously refrained from telling his sister of his proposal to Rosemary, lest Mrs. Force should try to influence the girl in his favor, and he did not wish the latter to be worried or coerced in any way. Certainly without mentioning your name. I shall know how to manage with tact and discretion, replied the lady. One word more, Elfrida. Would you approve of a marriage between this Roland Bayard and Rosemary Hedge? inquired the earl. Yes, I should. That is all. But I have not the disposal of the child's hand, so my own approval goes for nothing. It is enough, said the earl, and he opened the window looking from the parlor to the balcony and went out there to walk and smoke. Chapter 6 A Strange Meeting The middle of October found the forces with their party again at Rome, settled in their old quarters. News of the war came by every mail, bringing accounts of battles fought and lost or won. They were of those few who in the dreadful struggle could not take any side. They only longed for peace and reconciliation. They passed the winter in Rome, but in the early spring Mr. and Mrs. Force and their daughters began to long for their native country, even more than for their particular home. There seemed no present prospect of an end to the fratricidal war. The holocausts of youth, manhood, and heroism offered up monthly to the devil of discord did not seem to appease his rapacity. Every mail brought news of new battles and of thousands and tens of thousands slain on either side, the storm of war raging more and more furiously as the months went on. Elfrida, said Mr. Force one day, I cannot stand it any longer. We must go home, my dear, and be with our country in her need, not to burn and slay and rob on one side or the other, but to nurse the wounded and feed the hungry, and clothe the naked, and give all our time, money, and energy to this needful work. You and your daughters, and even your crippled husband, can do this much to abate the pain of the age. He had said words to the same effect before, but never with so much of sorrowful earnestness as now. Well, we will go, Abel. Yes, it is indeed our duty to do so. 
Besides, our Odalite is wasting away with hope deferred. We have not heard from Lee for so many months. He may be dead on some crowded battlefield, or ill and delirious in some hospital, or in some prison. We might find out his fate by going home. And then there is poor little Rosemary fretting out her heart about young Bayard, who has never been heard of since he sailed with Captain Grandier, now nearly three years ago. We might find out something satisfactory about him. We all need to go home. There is no one but Wynnette who is not breaking down under this anxiety and uncertainty. Wynnette thanks heaven every day that Sam Grandier chooses to stay home and mind his crops. As for Elva, she makes everyone's trouble her own, and suffers for and with all. Yes, we all need to go home. And our home and our country needs us, added Mr. Force. So it was decided that they should return home as soon as passages for their whole party could be secured. Mrs. Force dreaded to tell her brother of the impending separation. The Earl had grown so much better in health, spirits, and happiness while traveling in their company, that it would seem like relegating him to gloom, solitude, and despondency, to send him back alone to his old life at Enderby Castle. She took the time immediately after breakfast the next morning to break the news to him. "'Going? Going back to America?' he exclaimed in astonishment. "'Yes, it is our bounden duty.' The war is not the temporary disturbance that you thought it was to be. It is growing more terrible every month. It may last yet for years. We must go to our home and do the best we can for everybody, replied the lady. And then she went over the whole subject, as it had been discussed between herself and her husband. Yes, my dear, it is your duty to go home, admitted the earl. Still, my dear brother, we are very sorry to leave you. I hope, however, that you will not go back to Enderby Castle, to your old solitary life there. It is very bad for you. I hope you will go up to London, and open your house on Westbourne Terrace, and call your friends together and entertain them, even though I shall not be there with my daughters to help you, as I had once hoped to be. I shall not go to London, Elfrida. I have no friends there, and I hate society. No, I shall go to the United States with you, said the Earl. "'You don't mean it!' exclaimed Mrs. Force, between surprise, pleasure, and incredulity. "'Yes, I do most certainly mean it. I have never seen America. And though the state of civil war may not be the most pleasant aspect under which to view a new country, yet it is certainly the most interesting. And so, Elfrida, if you have no objection, I shall go with you to America.' "'You know that I am delighted at the thought of having you,' said the lady. "'Has Force written to engage passage?' inquired the Earl." He intends to write this morning to inquire about the first ship on which he can get berths for all our large party to New York. Then ask him to see about two additional berths for me and my valet. Thus it was arranged that the whole family party, including the Earl, should go to America together. In due time the answer from the agent of the Cunard line arrived. They could all be accommodated on the Asia, which would sail on the 23rd of March. This is the ninth. We have just two weeks to get ready in. We had best start for Liverpool as soon as possible, and make our final preparations for the voyage there, said Mr. Force, after he had read the letter to his assembled family. And, oh, Papa, let somebody go to Enderby Castle to fetch Joshua, exclaimed Wynnette. Why, my dear girl, the old dog may be dead, said the Earl. Oh, no, he is not dead. I write to Mrs. Kelsey every week to ask about dear Joshua, and he is very well. And he is not an old dog. He is only nine years old. I remember him ever since he was a puppy. Well, it has been over two years since he saw you, and he has forgotten you by this time. 
Oh, no, he hasn't. We were away from home three years and three months, and he never forgot us. You ought to have seen how he met us. Well, my dear, when we get to Liverpool, I will telegraph to one of my grooms to bring the dog to us. Dear uncle, how I love you. A week from this time the whole party were settled at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool to await the day of their sailing for New York. Mr. Force kept his room. The Earl of Enderby spent hours in his own apartment with his family solicitor and his land steward, both of whom had been summoned by telegraph to meet him at Liverpool. The ladies of the family spent their days in final shopping, providing themselves, among other conveniences, with thick linsey woolsey suits for sea wear, and with heavy astrakhan wool shawls for wraps. In due time the groom from Enderby arrived with Wynnette's dog in his charge. Space does not permit to describe the interview between the two. It is enough to hint that Joshua, in dog language, bitterly reproached his mistress for breaking faith with him, and deserting him for so long a time and then magnanimously forgave her, while Wynnette was all apologies for the past and protestations for the future. On Saturday, the 23rd of March, the whole party embarked on board the ocean steamer Asia, then at anchor in the Mercy, and bowed to sail for New York at twelve noon of that day. There was the usual crowd on deck with the usual partings, friends departing, and friends who had come to send them off, some grave, some cheerful, some merry, some despondent. At length this was all interrupted by the shout of the first mate from the poop, All ashore! And the last hurried good-byes were spoken, and the last embraces given, and the friends of the voyagers hastened over the gangplank to the steam-tender which had brought them to the ship. Then the farewell gun was fired, and the Asia stood out to sea, her passengers standing in lines to gaze on the receding land. Mr. Force and his party were walking up and down the deck of the steamer, when they saw coming from the opposite direction— a figure so remarkable that it would at once have attracted attention anywhere. It was the tall, stout figure of an old man, with a fresh red face, clear blue eyes, a white moustache, and a commanding presence. He wore the uniform of an American skipper, with its flat, gold-rimmed cap. As he approached, Mr. Force stared, and then started and held out his hand, exclaiming, "'Captain Grandier, you here! Why, where did you drop from, and where is Roland Bayard?' The gruff old sailor stopped to lift his cap to the ladies, and to shake hands all around, and to be introduced to the Earl of Enderby, and to shake hands with him, before he replied to Mr. Force's first question. My ship, the Kitty, was taken by that infernal pirate, the Argent. I was set ashore, alone on the English coast. I had some correspondents at Liverpool who supplied me with funds to return home. That is all. But where is Roland Bayard? With the pirates. End of chapter 6